How many narcissists does it take to screw in a light bulb? None. They don't use light bulbs. They use gaslighting. My name is Andrea, and this is Adult Child. Welcome back to Adult Child, where we take a deep dive into the impact of growing up in a dysfunctional family. Ahoy, my dear shit shows. How is it going? For any new listeners, my name is Andrea. I am the captain of this hot mess ship. I am a total shit show. I am also an adult child. And you should consider yourself pretty damn lucky if you are listening to these words right now. And no, not because they're coming out of my mouth, but because hopefully you've come here because you've had the realization that your childhood is negatively impacting your life as an adult and you want to do something about that. So today in the in our shit show support group, the reading that I chose was from The Language of Letting Go. It was actually the reading from yesterday, so February 12th, and it was titled Letting Go of Those Not in Recovery, I think is what it was titled. Yeah, letting go of those not in recovery. And basically what it was talking about, not necessarily like like going no contact, cutting people out of your life who are not in recovery, but the fact that there's nothing that we can do to, it uses a bridge as a metaphor that like, you know, we're on this one side of the bridge, which is when we're in the disease, when we're in the dysfunction, when we're in the pain, and then we cross over this bridge and on the other side is this life of recovery. And that it doesn't matter how much we love someone, how much we try to get them onto this bridge, there truly is nothing that we can do to get someone to walk on this bridge on the road to recovery. And it made me super emotional just reading it, just tears of of gratitude. Like I feel, I said to the group, I said, we are so damn lucky that we've been given this opportunity, that we've chosen to walk on this bridge, to walk this path, because so many people, most people never do. Most people never realize the impact their their childhood had on them. And then a ton of other people do realize that, but never do anything about it. So those of us who have that realization and choose to do something about it, we are the lucky ones. I think we are the ones that are really holding the keys to the kingdom, even though this work is so painful. This is fucking hard. <laughs> and sometimes it seems like it would be a lot easier to like never cross that bridge. But the reality of the situation is no, it is so worth it. And we are so lucky. So I think it's important that we from time to time really relish in that. There's my condiment reference for today's episode. (laughs) Also, if you're new, I'm a fucking condiment whore. And as you probably have gathered, I I love to curse. We say fuck here. You've been warned. I understand if that's not your cup of tea. But if it is your cup of tea, you're going to have a real fun time here today. So today, we are diving deep with returning guest, Dr. Kirk Honda. So he is a psychotherapist. He is the creator of the Psychology in Seattle YouTube channel, where he covers a ton of psychology topics. But most importantly, he provides a psychological lens on a lot of reality TV shows, the reality TV shows that we all know and love, like 90 Day Fiance. He also has a podcast. He's also a professor. I think he's also in private practice. 
So what does this guy not do? And he is our resident personality disorder expert here on Adult Child. So last time I had him on, and I have included the episode link from his prior appearance, where we discussed many things, but mostly focused on borderline personality disorder. And today we are talking about narcissistic personality disorder. We also discuss complex trauma and how he is seeing a lot of misinformation out there on the interwebs regarding that. He also shares about how when he was first in practice, how he believes that he was potentially harmful to some of his patients due to his limited knowledge and experience with complex trauma. And I just love this guy so much because he is just so damn humble. It's just a really solid dude. So I did just want to discuss MPD, narcissistic personality disorder, briefly. Everybody is a damn narcissist these days. This is just a term that is being way overused. Now, I know that there are a lot of you listening right now that are very familiar with it due to, you know, having parents that have NPD or having been in marriages with people with NPD. But for those of you who might not be as informed on the topic, I did just want to provide like a brief overview just so we cannot be contributing to the the misuse of this term that is so widely occurring out there in this wild world that we live in. So let's just start with the term narcissism, okay? So narcissism refers to a personality trait or a set of characteristics associated with excessive self-love, vanity, and a focus on one's own, own needs, desires, and achievements. And so it's really important to note here that narcissism in itself is not inherently pathological. Some degree of narcissism is normal and in fact is even necessary for healthy self-esteem and confidence. Most of us have it to a degree, but it is excessive narcissism that is the problem and could potentially be indicative of narcissistic personality disorder. So now let's talk about narcissistic personality disorder, NPD. So I'm going to go over what it says in the DSM-5. So they define MPD as a pervasive pattern of grandiosity in fantasy or behavior, 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 a need for admiration and a lack of empathy, beginning by early adulthood and present in a variety of contexts, as indicated by at least five of the following. Number one has a grandiose sense of self-importance. Two, is preoccupied with fantasies of unlimited success, power, brilliance, beauty, or ideal love. Three, believes that they are special and unique and can only be understood by or should associate with other special or high-status people. Four, requires excessive admiration. Five, has a sense of entitlement. Six, is interpersonally exploitative. That's like a hard word for me to say, exploitative. Exploitative. <laughs> exploitative? Exploited. Exploitative, i.e. takes advantage of others to achieve their own ends. Seven, lacks empathy, is unwilling to recognize or identify with the feelings and needs of others. Eight, is often envious of others or believes that others are envious of them. And nine, shows arrogant, haughty behaviors or attitudes. So again, 
Somebody needs to have five of these nine criteria in order to be diagnosed with NPD. I think a lot of the times when we are out there on the interwebs, we, meaning anyone, diagnosing somebody as a narcissist, they might be exhibiting one of these traits, but it's really important to note that uh, having a narcissistic trait does not mean that you have narcissistic personality disorder. I'm pretty damn sure that all of us exhibit a trait or two from time to time. Narcissistic personality disorder is is pretty rare. So it's estimated that between 0.5% and 5% of the population have it, but I think most estimates seem to side on the lower end of that, so between 0.5 and 2%. As I said, this is I did just want to say what is the DSM-5 because somebody might not somebody might have heard that term before but not exactly know what that means. So that is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. So the five means it's the fifth edition. And so this is something that is put together by the American Psychiatric Association. They make revisions to it pretty frequently. So it looks like the last revised version was published in 2022. What's important to note here is that the DSM-5 is not the be-all, end-all. It is not the definitive authority when it comes to mental health diagnosis. Here's a few reasons why. So the DSM-5 relies on symptom-based criteria for diagnosis. So this can be subjective and open to interpretation. So different clinicians may interpret the criteria differently, leading to variability in diagnosis. Another reason are cultural and societal factors. So the DSM-5 is primarily based on research conducted in Western industrialized countries, So it may not fully capture the diversity of cultural expressions of mental health disorders. So certain symptoms or behaviors may be considered normal depending on cultural context. Another reason would be overlap. So mental health disorders often co-occur, right? And so symptoms may overlap between different diagnoses. So this can make it really challenging to accurately diagnose a single disorder. Like, for example, complex PTSD and ADHD have a ton of overlapping symptoms. Another reason is that uh, the evolution of knowledge. So we are just constantly learning more and more and more, especially from a brain perspective about mental health disorders. So the DSM-5 may not fully capture all of the emerging concepts that are currently going on in research. And then the final thing that I wanted to point out, which I think is really interesting from the perspective of our subject matter here on Adult Child, is that the DSM-5 primarily focuses on the symptoms rather than the underlying causes or mechanisms. So this really limits our understanding of the complexities of these conditions and really hinder the development of more effective treatments. I mean, it is believed by Gabor Mate and many others, well-respected, that you know childhood trauma is really the root of all mental health issues. So yeah, there's that. There's your little NPD narcissism 101 course. I am definitely not an expert in this shit at all. So that's why I'm so uh, grateful that we can have someone who is an actual personality disorder expert to to keep us in check and explain this shit to us. So let's get the damn show on the road. But first, let's talk about why you, yes, you need to damn 
the join shit show. Hop on whatever that little bridge is called when you hop on a cruise. Let's hop on that little bridge and hop on this damn shit. This is my online support community where I host four weekly Zoom support groups. I'm frequently getting messages asking for the times of the groups. I put it in the show notes, but really quickly, I'm going to say this really fast. Sundays, 3.30 p.m. Eastern. Mondays, 8.30 p.m. Eastern. Tuesdays, 1 p.m. Eastern. Thursday, 8.30 p.m. Eastern. So this is also where you can connect with other fellow bridge dwellers. (laughs) These other folks that are on this bridge or are on this path of recovery and want to walk this path with you and have a little fun while doing so. So how about you just do the damn thing, damn the join shit show, see the link in the bio. You can just do it for one month and quit. Okay, so let's just do it. Yes, you, the person that's been wanting to join forever and hasn't done it. Today's your day. Okay, today's your day. Next, give me a little follow on the Insta, on the TikTok, at Adult Child Pod. And last but not least, give me a damn five-star rating on Apple and Spotify. It would really be helpful, too, if you could actually write a review in Apple. It could just be one word. It could just be one word. This really helps the more reviews the more that Apple and Spotify will recommend this to other potential shit shows. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Love you all. All right, y'all. Well, he's back. Dr. Kirk Honda, Mr. Psychology in Seattle. Welcome back to Adult Child. Happy to have you. Thanks for having me. What has been interesting for you to cover lately? I've been... Starting to watch, that's a weird way of putting it, the documentary about Natalia Grace. Have you seen uh-uh. this documentary? Do tell. It is one of the most twisty, turny documentaries. It just has so many different twists to it. And it's shocking just how this story plays out so what far is it? anyway. Can you give me highlights, cliff notes? A child is adopted from Ukraine. Oh, 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. To the United States. And she is a little person. Mm-hmm. And the parents discover or fabricate that she's actually an adult and not a four year old child. And this story just goes from there. Yeah. I mean, I feel like that story's been around for a while. Do you know, has there been any conclusive like findings or is it still TBD? Yeah, there are conclusive findings and there's a second season and it wraps up most of the threads. Okay. Have you covered any of the Munchausen chick that killed her mom? Yeah, Gypsy Rose. Have you did you cover uh, any of that her reality show? No, but I did a full long episode years ago when the documentary came out on Netflix. Uh I haven't had time to view the more recent events. But yeah, it's a fascinating case just as it is, but it's also a really good example of Munchausen by proxy. Or it's interesting. Or... I heard that the guy who, who was their boyfriend at the time, the one that killed the mom, that he's still in prison. And I heard that they're maybe claiming now that he might have autism. I don't know if you've heard that. I didn't know. So, okay. One thing I wanted to ask you about. So this was a video that you did back in probably almost a year ago, but you were just answering listener questions and somebody was asking about complex trauma in adulthood. But one thing that I thought was really interesting that you said was that you're like, I'd like to do more of a deep dive on this because I feel like the information, especially like on online discussions is all over the place and that you wanted to look more into the research. And I'm curious if since then you've, you've discovered anything. Well, I've certainly read a lot of the research in the clinical literature regarding 
complex PTSD and complex yeah. trauma. But in order to make a an authoritative or in order for me to speak from authority as a an expert, I want to really absorb a lot of the clinical literature and the research more so than I have over the years. So there's that. But yeah. My what in general, particular do you mean that like it's all over the place? What are the inconsistencies that you're seeing? Yeah. I see people using the term complex PTSD or complex trauma to refer to situations in which clinically we wouldn't necessarily use it. It seems to be broadening. Okay. And I think that it's a result of a couple of things. One is, is that in my field, been working really hard to try to raise awareness about psychology and about mm -hmm. trauma for decades. And it felt like we were fighting an uphill battle. But then in the last five years, maybe a little bit longer, especially during the pandemic, we crested that hill. And all of a sudden, it seems like gen the general public is, is aware of a lot of important things, which is great. A lot of people are getting help. A lot of people are being validated. Celebrities are coming forward with trauma and going to therapy and all sorts of things. The downside is that, which I hadn't predicted, that when you give tools to the general public, you're going to see the general public kind of run away with it and misinterpret it. Mm -hmm. So that's one, not similar things with gaslighting and narcissism, that kind of thing. On the other side, there are people who are suffering legitimately, but their concept hasn't been advertised enough, talked mm -hmm. about enough. Mm -hmm. And so they will, in, in the absence of any validating concept, they'll latch on to a concept that is as close as they can find one. And then the definition becomes more broad from there. Trauma bonding is another term. There's all sorts of terms that people will latch on to for legitimate reasons. But like, like an example would be, I'm trying yeah, to Yeah. What would be an example of like a, something that you don't, you do see as being referred to as complex trauma that you wouldn't necessarily think is. Yeah. Like if someone was, I don't know if this is an actual example, cause I, I hadn't prepared for this, but I would imagine I've seen things like someone online, maybe in a TikTok video talking about how their boss gave them complex trauma or something. Mm -hmm. And and I don't know if that's a real example, but I would imagine that things like that are being said. And it's possible. I'm not going to say that it's impossible, but it's not likely that clinically we would refer to it as complex trauma or even trauma yeah, to begin yeah. with necessarily. Yeah. It's interesting. Just the, um, I don't know. I feel like it's still such a battle, even just to explain to people. Um, I think a lot of people still don't even comprehend like how on the opposite end of it, like I'll still talk to people and they won't understand like, how did you experience complex trauma? How is it trauma just growing up in an alcoholic home when you didn't endure like physical or sexual abuse? Or like, I'll get comments like, but your family was like financially well off. So how could you have experienced <laughs> trauma? <laughs> Well, yeah. yeah, that was something that I learned firsthand. I would have clients from all over the socioeconomic spectrum with the exact same problems. Mm -hmm. They would manifest a little differently. Like the richer kids would be dealing other kinds of drugs <laughs> mm -hmm. like X or stuff like that. Whereas the, the kids from the more marginalized neighborhoods would be dealing other kinds of substances, but the fights were the same and the 
complaints were the same and the traumas were the same. Yeah. Yeah. What's been interesting for me is that I've realized in my healing that there's been some spiritual bypassing from the perspective of dealing with the anger and the sadness pertaining to my mother, because I'm a recovering alcoholic too. I've been sober for 15 years. And so I think I've always viewed my mother's harm to me as like, well, she suffers from the same disease that I do. So almost like an understanding of this is why it happened. And then moving straight forward to the, just like the forgiveness and the acceptance. And I had, and, and not really having the anger and the sadness, like come to the surface really. And I had an experience back in the summer where like I'm in the midst of an emotional flashback and it came to me like, I'm 34 years old. Like I didn't choose this. I didn't choose to be going through this right now to be 34 and feeling like I'm six years old after doing so much fucking work on myself already. And so it's finally been coming to the surface. And I guess it's not, I don't know what your personal I don't know what your perspective is on like spiritual bypassing, but from the perspective of like, it wasn't, it's not intentional. And I think it's just like, it comes to the surface when, whether it's your subconscious or your higher power knows that you're ready to, to deal with it. Mm -hmm. Well, I could yammer about that, but do you have a specific, like, well, is, are you thinking like, it's strange that it's happening? No, or... no, I don't think it's strange at all. Okay. No, I just think from the perspective of like, I hear the term spiritual bypassing and people will be like, we're intentionally... I'm not um, aware of that term. Actually. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. It's basically just like not dealing with the pain, toxic positivity in a way. But I'm curious what your perspective is as far as what I've noticed is that as you heal more and as you gain more resiliency, it is then like further on in the process that the deeper stuff does come to the surface. You think you're like doing good? Like I've healed this shit. And then a whole nother layer comes up to the top. Has that been your experience with working with clients? Yeah. Or just myself and everyone else. Yeah. The, we have this notion in medicine or in our culture that you have a problem and then you work on it and then it goes away. Especially I think in the United States and that is not the case when it comes to issues of a certain level. And what you're talking about are the kind of issues that, yeah, never go away. And I understand, one, the desire for it to go away, of course, and two, just believing what culture says. And even some therapists, there are clinicians who will say things like, well, if you're still working on it after 10 years, there's something wrong with mm -hmm. the therapy or there's something wrong with you or I don't know if a therapist say there's something wrong with you, but they might be some, they might say there's something wrong with the therapy, which it might be true, but it's not necessarily true. And so I understand that. And the more accurate, I think, way of looking at it is that it's more of a cycle. You're on a, you're on a, you're going down around a circle. And every time you come back around to that grief, pain moment, it's perhaps better and easier you recover faster it's diminished or it's changed it's morphed it's meaning has changed the first number of times around the circle it might have felt demoralizing and shaming then okay. you know and by the with a lot of work and a lot of therapy and a lot of self-awareness and a lot of support a lot of self-compassion you come around the circle again and it still is painful because that's just the nature of that but there's other voices in your head of this isn't your fault. Mm -hmm. It will get better. This isn't your final state. This is a, a storm that is coming. You have these five things that you can do. 
you've already told people around you that you go through moments like this and you do those things and then the storm passes. And then the next time you come around in that circle, it's different. So I think that that's a better way of looking at it. It sucks. Yeah. It's like enough already. <laughs> yeah. It's a funny, morbid thing to say, but trauma is the gift that keeps on giving. And it... mm -hmm. Boy, is it. <laughs> when you're working with individuals treating complex PTSD and the impacts of childhood, do you do any inner child work or parts work? It depends on what you mean, but generally speaking, yeah, but I don't necessarily frame it that way. Uh -huh. Certainly with parts work as a formal activity, I, I will do occasionally, but more generally, yeah, it's a worthy model to explore for all of us in therapy and otherwise about like that we have different sides to us, different conflicting dynamics. And then certainly I will refer to not necessarily using that phrase, but the idea that people have a, one way of looking at it is that we don't necessarily have an inner child, but that when you ask someone to think about their inner child, they give themselves permission to be vulnerable in a way that they had to forego because of trauma. Usually around 10 or 13 or something, people without even being traumatized will start to shame themselves for having emotions. You know, mm. when we're two years old, hopefully we're still not absorbing the kind of shame about emotion. And so we will just have spontaneous emotions <laughs> and we're not shaming ourselves, hopefully, because we're not being shamed from the outside. I mean, certainly there are two-year-olds who are being shamed, but the average person isn't necessarily being shamed too much. And so if I ask someone to think about the inner child or to take care of their inner child, then it helps people to move past that cultural stigma around emotion. Another thing I've heard you discuss is when you initially started practicing working with individuals and thinking that you knew about trauma, but maybe not to the extent, obviously, that you do now and that I don't know what word you use. I don't know if you use triggering or or what, but basically that you were having patients not come back and you realized that maybe you weren't being as effective as possible. Could you touch upon that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was being harmful. I was trained and influenced from the outside in a way such that I didn't know a critical reality of the science regarding the brain and trauma that if people have legit PTSD, because you can be traumatized in the broader term of the word trauma clinically and not develop PTSD or mm -hmm. complex PTSD or some other related thing like there are related personality disorders. But for those who do have those physiological and also personality reactions to the trauma that they had years and years ago, if you just go headlong into having them recall the memories of trauma, mm -hmm. although it, there's a little bit of helpfulness that's happening, the amount of distress mm -hmm. they will experience from the exposure of something that they, because a, a hallmark of PTSD is to avoid the memories. And mm -hmm. there's good reasons why they avoid, because when they remember or they're reminded of the memory, they have massive spikes in distress, possible dissociation. And then from those like chronic spikes in stress, people will become a version of depressed. They will uh, avoid a lot of things in life. They might even avoid opening up. They, they'll shame themselves. They'll avoid being close to others. The syndrome of PTSD all stems from that spike in the stress that happens over time. Mm -hmm. And so it might seem like the right thing to do is to have people talk about their traumas. It is a 
a trope at some point. It's like the stereotypical therapy session as someone talks about their traumas. And I was actually trained to lean into that. But for people who had actual, and so for many of my clients, that was fine. They, they could talk about their traumas because they didn't have PTSD and then it would work out okay because it would be validating and processing all the good things of therapy. But for people who have PTSD, they can have such a spike that it'll either just turn them off to therapy or it'll throw them into like three months of symptoms that could even lead to suicide, by the way. And they're like, therapy sucks because it makes me feel worse. <laughs> I feel worse about going to therapy. And so there have to be a lot of measures taken by experts in PTSD and complex PTSD before you even begin to talk about your traumas. And, and that could take five weeks or it could take five years. It really just depends on the client and the course of therapy and whatnot. What was your process in realizing that you were being harmful? Like, how did that come about? Well, I started noticing that there was one particular client that was very noticeable that I was working with her for years and we had a really great relationship and she was a pretty easygoing person. And we had been through some, because it started out as family therapy with her kids mm -hmm. who were very, had were acting out a lot. And there's a lot of ups and downs through therapy. We'd been through a lot of trials. And so it wasn't like we hadn't, our relationship hadn't been tested before. And then she sits down one session and she says, there's something about my childhood that I've been avoiding talking about that I've never told anybody. And I mm. feel like it's time I tell you. And at the time, I remember exactly where I was and where I was sitting in the office and that it was sunny out. <laughs> and I remember thinking, this is the golden profound. Yeah. This is where <laughs> all therapists want to eventually yeah. get to. It's the fruit of one's labor. And, she, you know, so she went into a difficult childhood, early childhood story and it felt good. And she was processing it well. And I was right there with her and the session ended well. And then she canceled somehow. I don't remember how exactly the next session and I literally never heard from her again. Mm. And I thought... To this day? Yeah. Mm. And, and that doesn't happen. That my sort of practice, that's not normal. So it always perplexed me. And I even have some a gift from her on my wall behind me. You can't really see it from where. But she, on the way up to my office, I, I had this Japanese maple tree and she had taken these these leaves one day on the way home and actually had dried them and pressed them and put them into this frame. And it's, it was, it's a very special thing. And, and so it always plagued me. I was like, what happened there? That's just, and it, that, that's not a pleasant thing for mm -hmm. Especially somebody you've been working with for so long. Yeah. And I, then later when I had future mentors and would have future exposure to literature, I started to absorb more information and in the science and how actual exposure, prolonged exposure therapy works and the, the principles regarding that within behaviorism. And again, I had a mentor that had done this work before. And so it takes a lot. It's complicated. There, there's a lot of details. Every client is different. And then with that mentor, I had clients who had PTSD and I would 
and complex PTSD. And as I was treating them, although I was I had newly acquired the science and understood it, applying it is actually really complicated. And so working with the mentor and trial and error through that whole thing for years, eventually I concluded that in the past I was mm -hmm. led astray and had harmed a client and maybe others. In a do-over, how do you think you would have approached that? Like when she said that, I have something I need to tell you that I've never told anyone before. Yeah. Well, in a really small nutshell, what I will say is that I need to make sure that the client understands their distress level, mm -hmm. that they can communicate it to me, that they understand it right away, and that they can, and then they, and that, and that they have an array of tools, effective tools to reduce their distress in the moment, in session and out of session. Because as we go into exposure throughout the week, they're going to have spikes of distress because they're starting to re-remember all these things. And whether they're at work or at home or at the, at the store and they're being triggered, they need to have things available to them right then that can reduce their, their distress level. Because if they spike on a scale from one to 10 beyond like a six or a seven, then we're actually doing more harm than good. Because every time you go through that distress, it just makes the trauma more ingrained in the physiology. So for some people that might take five weeks, they might've already done a lot of emotional work or awareness, but for some people they're lost when it comes to emotions. They've never been aware of any emotion, literally, you know, because of the trauma. And so it could take five years just to begin to one, know your emotions and two, be able to control them effectively. What are some good ways for someone to suss out whether somebody, a, a therapist is like aware enough to, to treat complex trauma? How yeah, there isn't, mm -hmm. there isn't an effective way because at least in the, the typical ways people will vet therapists, because even if someone says they're trauma informed or mm -hmm. they're a expert in PTSD, that I would say is a 50, 50 chance they know what they're doing. Also, even if they know, they won't necessarily know how to use it. it. Like I said, it's complicated. It's one of those things that seems like therapists would just learn and know, but it really it's really a specialized area. Because mm -hmm. the other thing is you have to understand dissociation. You have to know how to detect it because clients, people don't typically know they're dissociating. Mm -hmm. So you have to be able to, it's not easy. And you have to manage dissociation because of some, anyway. So the one thing I would recommend people do is they call them or email them or where there's a back and forth and they say, if someone comes into your office and has trauma or PTSD, what do you do? And so if you hear them lay out a version of what I'm saying, there's a greater chance that they know what they're doing. But if they don't have any kind of, if they just say like, well, we'll talk about your trauma, then I would still run clear. for the hills. Yeah. Well, I wouldn't necessarily run for the hills, but <laughs> uh, I, I would really try hard to find someone that exhibited expertise in this area. Yeah. Yeah. I would think too, an understanding of like family systems is also really important and Code it. There's just so many things. And like, yeah. like you said the last time we were on, like there's only so much you can learn in school, right? Yeah. So. Yeah. There's so many things. I've been living and breathing this topic since 1995. And 
as a therapist, as a I've two masters and a doctorate. I I've been working this whole time. I've, I've been a professor. When you teach it, you got to really know it. And when you're a professor, you're with all these other academics, and you know you're you're in the mix all the time. Your friends are also clinicians, so you're at the bar at midnight and you're talking about psychology topics. Then I start a podcast, so and now I have family members that work for the podcast, so we talk about. So I live this whole thing, and I'm still in the dark or <laughs> not fully aware of the vast majority of topics within psychology. It's just too big. Mm -hmm. Okay. So now to pivot over to narcissism and narcissistic relationships, what do you think are the most, the, the biggest misconceptions for the general public at large about narcissism to start off? So I don't know exactly how I could imagine how, but through the awareness of psychology that I was talking about earlier, people became aware of this clinical term called narcissism. And people are now seemingly using it. Describe to, everyone. <laughs> but specifically anyone who they, I, I think what they're using it for is a replacement word for harmful mm -hmm. or abusive or toxic. And it's getting weirder. Like in the beginning, when I first started hearing people using it, wrongly, they were using it as a replacement for a psychopath or an antisocial personality spectrum individual, which isn't super far from the mark. It's still drastically wrong, but at least it's in the ballpark and they were only using it for like the severe cases. I was watching 90 Day Fiance not too long ago and one of the individuals was calling their husband narcissistic and the context, which I'm not really remembering, but it was so, I was like, huh? It, it almost seemed like she was using it to refer to someone who just wasn't a good husband or so. It wasn't even related to self-centeredness or arrogance or being harmful necessarily. I, I just thought like, wow, so we're just using narcissistic or you're a narcissist to refer to literally anybody that you don't we like. don't like. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, I don't like pickles. They're narcissistic. And mm -hmm. like, huh? it's like, wow. And <laughs> I will have students now who will come into my, come into my program and I have to deprogram them mm -hmm. from having been quote unquote educated about topics like this. And it's so annoying. In the past, it was hard because they hadn't even heard of the term, but I'd rather go back there because now I have to I have to deconstruct the whole, I have to start, I can't start from the beginning. I have to start from way back to rework all this stuff. And I worry because there's one research shows that among many topics, narcissism is not well understood among clinicians. And a lot of clinicians mm. don't understand that they don't understand it because it's really mm. personality disorders in general are, are, are like super complicated. And I worry that I think I've seen evidence of this, that there's a a lot of therapists online like myself, but there's a lot of novice clinicians online who are just saying shit about narcissism and they don't know what they're talking about. So when you have clinicians talking to other clinicians online, then that's when things start to, because who else defines these things other than clinicians? 
And then you have all the experts who aren't necessarily online. I'm one of the few online that actually, I'm one of the few people that I would consider to be an expert, not to pat myself on the back, but it's a specialty of mine who actually is online. So I worry that in 10 years, 99% of people and clinicians won't even understand what it means. It's a useful but, concept is the thing. No it's, kidding. A, it's a very use when you understand it, it's a very useful construct, but it's specific and being misused. Yeah. It's concerning if you're seeing practitioners talking to other practitioners and, and giving false information, like in an online forum, that's really disturbing. Yeah. And you know, if we're, if we're just like, well, it's just a word, it's just pedantic. It points to a larger problem of if you, I would just imagine if you were new to the field and you're just trying to absorb everything you can about psychology and you're on TikTok for at least an hour a day, I would imagine that if I were in those shoes, I would be going down roads in which mm. good number of notions or wisdoms or understandings would influence me in a way that would actually lead to me harming clients. Like someone come, an individual comes into my office and starts complaining about her husband. And I'm just like, oh, I know this. He's a narcissist. And so you need to divorce him or, you know, and maybe other, even other clinicians told me to do that stuff. So it is worrisome. Well, I think the pro the problem is like how much the word is rewarded as far as like in search engines. And I talk to people, it's like people might not be narcissism experts, but that's their videos on that are what are getting the hits. Right. Yes. So. Okay. Well, what percentage of the population is it, did they say has MPD? I think it's like 2%. It depends on how you define it in the study, but okay. most studies- How would it vary? Like how, how are there big differences in how the personality disorder is being defined? If you're uh, looking at actual well, like psychological studies and literature? Well, I will. Yeah. So in the studies, sometimes they will broaden it, particularly when they're talking about general narcissism, because okay. that's a whole other topic in that uh, you might hear studies that say like people are more narcissistic today than they were 30 years ago. They're not talking about narcissistic personality disorder. They're talking about something that actually is dubious because it could literally be a sign that people have more self-esteem now in a mm -hmm. good way than 30 years ago. And you wouldn't frame that as being narcissistic, but so that's a whole other topic. I can't remember the main researcher's name, but when it comes to trying to actually find, you know, NPD, the prevalence in society, sometimes it comes down to like, how do you ask the questions? How much do we allow other people to make calls about other people? If you're asking, you know, how many, how many narcissistic people do? So there's a lot of different methods, but Generally speaking, when you actually do pretty rigorous assessments of individuals that are expensive, it takes a long time. Yeah, it's it's about 2%. And do the they have to meet all of the criteria or is it like, what is it, like five of seven or how many uh, I don't know. I remember in? the specific in terms of the DSM language, uh -huh. but, but yeah, it's, it's a set. But generally speaking, what clinicians, experts will say is that the criteria and the f whatever five of seven... It's just there as a way to provide some quote unquote scientific threshold because otherwise it's hard to know if people are all following the same rules. But generally what we would say is that someone has developed a schema in which deep down they believe that they are nothing, that they are worthless, 
shameful, just irrelevant creatures mm. deep down. But their solution, their defense is to delude themselves and others that not only are they worthy, but they're superior. And they need that to be true because even if everyone else believes that they're superior, but but they know that they're not, they will crumble. So a lot of their efforts to make sure everyone understands that they're superior, maybe even making other people inferior, is because that's evidence that they are worthwhile. They're not constantly trying to make everyone inferior just because they want to. They're doing it because every minute of every day, depending on the severity of it, they're trying to reassure themselves that they're okay. <laughs> but they know they're running on a treadmill away from a monster and they're never getting far away from it. How much consciousness is there of that? Uh, Very little? Yeah, yeah. none. Uh, personality disorders without treatment, the hallmark is that they lack insight, yeah. So then when we look at it really being shame-based and them thinking that they're nothing, obviously there's like psychological theory, but have there been experiences where they've, because the defenses are so strong and they have no awareness, but have there been instances where like either through like hypnosis or breaking down where they've actually been able to identify that within the person or is that just theory? Are you asking about there... the, the being truly shame-based and feeling like they're deep yeah. down inside feeling like they're nothing? Yeah. It's not hard to find Surmise. because for people who have the legit disorder, Mm -hmm. if they're being honest or you're close enough to them, you will see Pick that up, they, yeah. they're not doing well. Like mm -hmm. if when they're out, like a common story is that you'll have a husband who at work and in the world is acting out the superiority and might even be convincing everyone that they're awesome and perfect and wonderful and achieve, they've achieved so much and might even believe that their home life is perfect, all this kind of stuff. But the wife will tell you that, he is not secure. Mm -hmm. In fact, when things go wrong at work, which happens frequently, he'll come home and he will just be in the worst mood or he'll even go into the bathroom and cry for like five hours or scream at everyone in the house. You know, he's not doing well. Mm -hmm. And so that's one profile, a common profile that I've treated many times. So yeah, it's, it's not hard to find evidence that the person is suffering from something. Mm -hmm. And what are your thoughts on people that think that they can essentially be healed? Yeah. Personality disorders, aside from antisocial, potentially all can be improved regarding symptoms. And the path is through awareness and corrective experiences, in my opinion. And people with narcissistic personality disorder, even antisocial psychopathy, but but yeah, absolutely with narcissism, same with borderline, same with paranoid, all the personality disorders, if the person is ready and the therapist is good enough and the relationship is strong enough and the person has enough funding to have long-term therapy and there's enough going well enough in their life that they're not in constant crisis, then self-awareness is likely. And then long-term with corrective experiences and the corrective experience for the person with narcissism, ironically, is that 
they're made to feel special, mm -hmm. but, but not because of something they achieved, but, mm -hmm. but just because of are. who they are on the inside. Also, they have to get in connection with themselves, which because of their early neglect, never achieved. But yeah, I, I've treated people with narcissistic personalities. It's not easy. What is uh, it, do you think, gets somebody to that place of, of willingness? Commonly, in my experience, their life will... Completely implode? Yeah. They're like a common story is you'll have a woman who is skating through life. Things are going okay. And if you asked her, she would say things are not only going well, but everything's going perfectly. Meanwhile, her marriage is going poorly over time. Her spouse is trying to assert, but it's not working. Then all of a sudden divorce happens, come, comes out of the blue. And there's been a lot of fighting, but this one's bigger. And then the wife, the narcissistic person is like, well, I don't understand. Like, I thought everything was perfect. And then the narcissistic person can't rely on their normal defenses because as the constant onslaught of the pain of the loss or the disillusionment or the loneliness, then they can't get on top of it. Their normal defenses aren't working. And they might turn to substances. Someone might suggest they go to therapy. Their workplace might say, hey, unless you go to therapy, we're not going to keep you around or something. And then they end up in my office. And then the work begins. It's not easy, though, because they're not sitting down in my office saying, I suffer from narcissistic personality. Or they're just like, I just need five sessions to get over this hump or whatever. But yeah, it, it's usually something like that. And so is part of the process of getting them, quote unquote, better, getting them to understand that they have MPD? Yeah. Is that, yeah. And, and I mean, how... I don't know if I, I always use that because narcissistic personality disorder, the, the phrase, the label it's quite... is specific yeah. to the DSM and, you know, the research literature, but you don't, not every clinician or clinical piece of literature uses that exact phrase. You know, that phrase was developed by the authors of the DSM mm -hmm. in relation to a lot of literature that's been around for a long time. So I, I don't necessarily have to say that, but I, I will. Yeah. Cause I tell them, don't Google it. <laughs> I might show them in the DSM. This is what's going on. It might take years to get there. To be uh, able also, to let them know to, yeah. To yeah, get them it also to takes see it or me, before you'd even bring that terminology up. Yeah. It might mm -hmm. take years. It takes me months even to be confident that the label applies anyway, because mm -hmm. personality disorders take a long time to assess. And so do you feel like you can be helpful to them in those like in those first few months when you're trying to get an idea of of what it actually is going on with somebody who's suffering from a personality disorder? Do you feel like they're getting much out of it, the process? Yeah, depends. But uh -huh. Um, yeah, people with narcissistic personality disorder, they're not aliens. They have the <laughs> same kind of humanity that everyone else does. And they care and don't want their life to go down the tubes. And they also love their spouse, mm. contrary to what the internet will say, mm -hmm. and don't want to lose them. Mm -hmm. Or they also probably know that they're a little arrogant and a little braggy. And... Uh, they don't want to do that to other people. But yeah, I can think of cases in which people will have made some changes in their life pretty quickly. But 
99% of the time, those changes are temporary because yeah. they're in a crisis. And so I'm not thinking, wow, this is permanent. I'm thinking this is this is the honeymoon period. And so I have to capitalize on that. And a frequent thing that I'll say to people with NPD and therapy is I will say, at some point, you will think that you don't need therapy anymore. And it's very self-serving of me to say, you probably do need therapy, but it's a hallmark of your schema because people with narcissistic personality disorder, what's working against them is that due to their early childhood experiences, they were forced to be independent yeah. way too early. And so they think that the default mode in life is pathological independence. Yeah. And when their defenses kick in, they're like, I know more than my therapist does. But even just baseline, they're just like, yeah, I'm good. I don't need to bother anyone with my things. So when they're in that honeymoon period, I try to plant those seeds of like, you're free to leave and I'm not going <laughs> to disparage you, but I'm just saying it's a hallmark of your thing that you're going to drop out at some point because things are going a little bit better. And then you're right back to where you started a year from now. And I would imagine that even when you say that every single time, if you're working with somebody long enough, that will come up, I'm assuming, that they yeah. think they're good. And oh, yeah. then how do you navigate that? Yeah, it's fraught because, like I said, it's very self-serving to say, <laughs> I've diagnosed you as clinically wrong when you say you want to drop out of therapy with me <laughs> and stop paying me money. So- I will be explicit about that and very careful about any sort of pressure I put on people. But I'll phrase it in a way of saying, like, in my clinical opinion, this is what's going on. And I would predict much better things for you if we continue with this long-term work. It takes a while. You're absolutely free to, free to leave, and I'm not going to get upset if you make that choice. And, and we'll start transitioning to terminate, but, but that's just my clinical opinion, and you can take it or leave it. Some people take it, some people leave it. And what would be indicators that you see that somebody is getting better? Vulnerability and like true vulnerability, like when they are hurt or sad or rejected or scared, they not only talk about it, which is great, mm -hmm. but they also will emote it. Like they're, their husband hurts their feelings emotionally. Like he, um, I don't know, he was like, a, I don't know, a common narcissistic kind of trigger would be that you're at dinner, you're at a dinner party and let's say the wife, she's narcissistic and the husband is paying too much attention to other people and, and, or isn't complimenting her enough or something. And it's really, cause there's other people, there's eyes on her self-conscious. And then on the way home, Instead of giving him the cold shoulder or or putting him down, she cries. She mm -hmm. just says, when you were doing that, I don't know if it's just my issue but and my trigger from my early childhood, but when you were talking to other people and you weren't being there for me, it, it was destroying me. Again, it could be me, but I'm just telling you, like it was so hurtful and then crying. That is very hard. For some with NPD. I mean, it is, I, I can, I can work for years and feel pretty good about how things are going and not see that for seven years. There's such a blockage there. It's so scary because when they were one year of age, they were vulnerable, but no one was there. Mm -hmm. So that's the next question. It, it's nature. 
Yeah. No, no, I it's nurture. nurture. Yeah. Sorry, nurture. Sorry. Nurture. I mean, nature nurture. might play yeah, you know a what I mean. role in setting up the disposition to be pushed in that direction. You neglect a one-year-old child, you're going to see something. But maybe with some kids, they already have a, a leaning in the narcissistic direction, seemingly, or cluster B direction, maybe. And would it always be because they say most impactful is what, like one to two or zero to three? Like, typically, is that what we would see with this? Or could, could it be experiences that are hap- granted? I don't know why it would randomly just start happening when they're six years old. But generally speaking, are we talking very, very, very early childhood? Yeah, we're talking early childhood for sure. Because once you learn good skills or good enough procedures emotionally, zero to five, and you experience really bad things after that point, then you might see some some effects for sure. I mean, you can be bullied at school and be in a good family and have long-term effects, but the kinds of effects will be different and the recovery will be different. With people with narcissistic personality disorder, they at no point in their life had ever had a a, a chance to be vulnerable and be seen. Whereas someone who is raised well zero to five and then they're treated horribly, they might have retracted from the world. That might be one defense. But when they engage in therapy, once we start to engage with them in a way that makes them feel safe enough, all of those skills and those foundations will start to show themselves. Where people with NPD, they they don't have that at all. You got to start literally from the beginning with them. So then what about those who had parents that really hyped them up like too much in a way? C- can somebody form MPD that way as well? No. If they're loved enough. It has to be some neglect. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So what, how many, how many, what percentage of the people that you've worked with have been people that have been in a relationship with somebody who has MPD? Would you say you've worked more so with those who have it versus those who are in a relationship with them? What percentage of the people that I've clientele that you work with, yeah, that you've treated that have had MPD? No, that you are in a relationship with somebody who has it. Not, not, not frequent because NPD, like I was saying earlier, is two percent of the population. Now, people who have spouses with NPD are perhaps more likely to end up in therapy, but. There's a, the, the thing is, is there's a lot of personality disorders. And so mm-hmm. narcissistic personality disorder is just one that the general public is aware of, but there are far more prevalent personality disorders that clinicians are more likely to see uh, just on average. Okay. Well, maybe just being in a relationship with somebody who has a personality disorder in general. Mm. Um, well, what? yeah. I think everyone is on a spectrum of some personality disorder. <laughs> That's just me. And are and, they moving uh, towards that? Well, we've always considered personality to be a spectrum, most of us. The disorder part of it was because of the need to formalize these labels in the 50s because we needed to justify funding. So it's the whole language in the DSM is is just there for that. But for 150 years, we've been describing personality and the DSM language comes from that. Before you had the DSM, you had just psychoanalysts talking about narcissistic personality or borderline personality or obsessive compulsive personality. And there's a, it wasn't a formalized 
defined thing, but then we, the DSM comes along. So, so yeah, it, since the beginning, it's always been considered a spectrum. I think I heard who was the, the, the doctor that was in the, um, it, in the Depp Heard case, the, the blonde, the curl with the curly hair, who did, who yeah. did the, I forget her name. her name. Yeah. I heard her on a podcast talking about how for whatever that one big test is that she used on Amber, the, the M- M- yeah, that they were maybe going to have it move towards more being on a spectrum rather than labeling them with certain personality disorders. I think. Oh, I well, what she might've been referring to was before DSM five came out in 2013, the, uh, there was a movement to try to revamp the entire diagnostic system of personality disorders to have more spectra instead of just like you have this, you have that. And they almost got it shoehorned in, but it didn't, it didn't survive, but it it's in the DSM as like a, an alternative way of diagnosing, but okay. I don't see a lot of people using it very using often. It? Okay. So let's say somebody comes into your office they're in a relationship with somebody who does have a, a personality disorder. I, I definitely know that there are quite a few people that are listening to this podcast that have been in relationships with actual narcissists. What sort of feedback are you giving them as far as like the hope or the perspective that their spouse or their partner could actually change? Like, what do they need to wrap their head around? Well, Obviously, it has to be focused on them getting help for themselves. Yeah, right. So there's a number of things. One is because of the overusage of narcissistic, I uh-huh. would imagine that a lot of people would be strongly convinced that their partner currently <laughs> yeah. is narcissistic when in fact uh-huh. it's not even close to that. At the what, very so least, Lynn, what do you suggest what do you suggest somebody does if, if they're convinced that they're in a relationship with a narcissist and I would suggest they get away from the bird narcissist and stop watching narcissists content. And I would have them focus on just non-clinical descriptions because mm-hmm. we can all describe things non-clinically. We don't have to bastardize clinical terms. Just say, I feel harmed. Mm-hmm. I don't feel listened to. I don't feel that they love me. I feel like they ignore me. I feel like they, especially if we're talking about just flat out abuse, they hit me or they gaslight me. Well, even that term is bastardized today, but I would just recommend people stop trying to use clinical terms and because you have words that have been taught to you that you can use. They're not easy things to use because it's like a lot of people, I mean, there are times in any marriage when people will think they're being abused maybe (laughs) and they're not because you're particularly triggered or it's a bad moment or something. Now, does abuse happen? Yeah. And a lot of people who are being abused won't, they're not allowed to think that they're being abused. So it goes a lot of different ways. So I guess I would say that therapy helps and couple therapy helps and trying to convince your partner to go to couple therapy is hard, but there are ways and there's a path forward, but it's complicated because there's a whole group of people in this category that are currently being abused by any measure. And by entertaining the idea that they can fix their partner is actually just playing into them being a victim further. And they definitely should be taking steps to get away at the very least for a bit so they can think for a second because they're 
deep in the pit of victimhood because the, the partner over the years has gaslit them legitimately and been a, tore them down. And so giving general advice is tough. But I will say, and I have had this conversation with clients who have partners with actual narcissistic personality disorder. And I will say that depending on the situation that, yes, if like, I'm thinking of one client where her husband had narcissistic personality disorder and he, you know, it was a similar thing I was saying earlier where my client decided to divorce and then he had a meltdown and had a complete change of, of his behavior and his mindset and was being vulnerable for the first time in 30 years of the marriage. And then she was like, well, I'll maybe consider us getting back together if you go to therapy. Mm -hmm. And since I was there to help her to guide this, she didn't say just go to therapy. She said, you need to find a specialist, a narcissistic personality. He did that. This is a long kind of term kind of story here. But, and so he, and he was meaningfully using individual therapy. They also went to couple therapy with a specialist. And what I was telling her after that dust had settled, I said, this could be years before you see any major results. You're in a much better place now because he's in therapy and you're in couple therapy. You have ways of, if anything happens in the week, you'll, you're going to be able to talk about it right away. And so he's going to be more on his toes about making sure he's not just slipping back into those defenses. But the problems didn't cease. His personality didn't change overnight. The relationship in a lot of ways just had to be completely re rebuilt from the ground up because the whole premise of the relationship was based on their defense. She had the mirror image of it, mm -hmm. of a denial of self and a codependency and this kind of thing. And so it was years and years of work. But uh, what she would tell me was after years of that, that things were better and they weren't perfect, but she was glad that they all went down that road and so was he. Did they get back together? They never really divorced. Actually broke up. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, but she was reinvigorated <laughs> by things and was willing to come to the table. So I think it's interesting. I totally understand the over pathologizing and maybe not using labels, but then at the same time, I think about it from the perspective of like if you're dating an alcoholic or something and how it is important to understand and learn about the disease. If you're in a relationship with somebody, especially from the perspective of like having like false hope on how easy it is to get sober or how easy it is to change. And so do you feel like any of that is important from the perspective of dating somebody with a personality disorder? Yeah, that's a good point. Personality disorders are harder a lot harder to comprehend than an alcoholism. alcohol use disorder, but mm -hmm. not that alcoholism is super easy to know. But what I would say is that instead of a particular label, I would put your partner to the test, mm -hmm. which doesn't sound great, but of like, is there any, if I set up the situation perfectly, so say I'm in the relationship with someone that I suspect has some personality disorder, some rigidity, which is another kind of term. I would say like rigidity of perspective, I think is is one mm. way to put it. Because personality disorders, the hallmark is they perceive things differently and thus they feel things differently, thus they act differently. It's all based on the filter they see everything through. For 
for me, if I'm a layperson, I would, because a lot of times when you're trying to convince your partner of something, it's in the midst of a fight and mm -hmm. there's a lot of, so I'd wait until everything was calm and then I would, I would go to them and say, hey, and I would maybe try to do something really minimal, minimally threatening. I don't know, something like, hey, can we just do a, I'm really sorry, but can we just do like a little exercise where maybe even this is even over text or something. It's like, I'm going to identify one thing that I have done bad in this relationship over this past year. And then, and I'll apologize for it. And I want you to do something, even if it's just small, whatever it is, just the tiniest little thing. And I'll start. And then you say, last week I was mean to you because when you did this, I just blasted you or I was short with you or whatever. And you don't have any excuses. You just say, it's on me. End of story. I was wrong. And then what does your partner do? <laughs> because a non-personality disordered partner is more likely to be able to respond to that. They might get a little weary, like what's going on there, especially if it's brand new, but some of the personality disorder, it's going to be really hard for them. Depending on the personality disorder, it's going to be really hard for them to do that. And that's not a perfect litmus test, but at least for yourself, whether or not the person has a personality disorder, that's a great test to see if you're in a situation that is workable or not. Because if you can't, I don't know if it's okay to swear, if you can't fucking yes, fuck identify yes. one thing in this past year uh -huh. that you did that was wrong and apologize, even if it was the this tiny little thing, like you asked me to take out the garbage and I waited a lot. Like if you can't think of a single thing, something's wrong. Let's say they identify something, but it comes with a but. That could be, this. the fact that they came up with something is good. And they might just be used to doing that. So I would give that a second chance. I'd be like, I might even start the thing of like, no buts. <laughs> I'm going to, let me do it again. I did this thing to you. And, and I have buts in my head. But I'm not going to say it because I, I feel like that diminishes hmm. what I'm trying to get across, which is that I'm sorry that I did that or recognizing that I did that. So could you do it again with, without that? And I might even throw in like, if, if I'm really making a suggestion to the general public right now, I would say, throw in the caveat of, this isn't a precursor to divorce. There's no stakes here. And if you do it wrong in my mind, I, I don't know. I, I, I just had this thought. I just, I just thought it'd be interesting to see how we do with this. I saw a TikTok about it or something, and, or I was listening to a podcast about it, and Low stakes. Some people under stakes will freak out. And and huh. so is that a evidence of a personality disorder? Not necessarily. At the very least, it's evidence that because all all things stem from that ability to recognize that you have done something wrong and to be mm. able to take responsibility and state it. Yeah. And I think that a lot of people have partners that seemingly can't do that and they're just labeling nar narcissistic when they're not narcissistic. Hmm. Well. Is it always indicative of some sort of mental issue or is it just a lack of being able to communicate and not learning how to communicate properly, a lack of self-awareness? Yeah, all the above. It could be a variety of things. It could also just be their mood or the way you delivered it or something. But I wish that people would talk more about this fundamental, which mm. is just universal. Everyone understands the function of being able each to person being able to say, I did this bad thing to you, however small, or I did this big bad thing to you. And 
I have my excuses, but I'm not going to say it. everyone understands that's important. Mm. And you don't need a label. We don't, and, and it could mean something. It might not mean who, but without that, then one, your relationship isn't going to function well. Two, it's going to feel really shitty over time, <laughs> especially if you're the one apologizing. You're the one saying, I'm sorry. And you're getting none of that back. back. Yeah. Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> Been there. <laughs> God. So do you think that couples therapy is effective if somebody is diagnosed with a, a personality disorder, but they're not in individual therapy themselves? Yeah. Yeah. You're going to get some therapists that will say no, but research shows and anecdotally for myself, absolutely. I might literally treat a couple where one person has narcissistic and the other person has borderline. And over time, I will slowly start to coalesce around those constructs and labels about the two of them, like full-blown narcissistic, full-blown borderline. And there'll be a lot of volatility and a lot of fighting and a lot of perceptual issues, a lot of triggering, because both people have their their traumas, massive traumas and triggers. And it can work, but they have to try and have reasons. And I have to be really good at my fucking job because the amount of countertransference, because that's a whole other thing, is that the amount of evoked feelings that people with personality disorders will cause in other people as you get closer to them, it is tremendous. And therapists are prone to that as well. And without expertise and experience, then therapists will become convinced of some very strange things and will at the very least reject a client wrongly or even harm a client in some pretty overt ways. So it's hard, but yeah, absolutely. It's better if each of them has individual therapy and in addition to that, for sure. But but I've, I've done that kind of work before, yeah. Mm. How much of it do you think at play if somebody's in a relationship with somebody like that and they have love addiction or attachment, like how much of that do you think is in play in them staying in the relationship? What are your thoughts on love addiction? Well, I don't use that term. I, I think that it's generally defined in a way that just looks like preoccupied attachment to me or having been victimized by threats, some sort of dynamic in a relationship where you frequently feel like you're pursuing or wanting but not getting enough of or something. You know, there's also dependency, over-dependency. So... Would you say typically in these situations that there is an aspect of trauma bonding going on? Specifically what? In, a, in, in relationship with somebody with MPD? Yeah, I think I understand your question. That So you, you take someone with legit and narcissistic personality disorder and their partner also has a lot of issues that result in them being attracted to that wanting person. to be with that person in the first mm -hmm. place and, and staying with that person. Yeah, mm -hmm. that's almost that's almost always the case. Yeah. But I wouldn't go as far as the internet would and say, well, it's their fault too or something. Because it's it's really no one's fault. It's yeah. Just how things play out. People do their best as they work their way through life, you know. Absolutely. I saw that you've been interviewing your dad. Yeah. How's that been? Amazing. Yeah, it's it's been great. I have a good relationship with my parents anyway, and I talk with them anyway, but it's nice to have this excuse to dive deep into certain topics, yeah. Have you been talking much about his life? Yeah. Have you what yeah. have you learned about him that you didn't know? 
Well, I should also say that a few years ago, I spent months and months interviewing my parents individually, but without the purpose of publishing any of those mm -hmm. recordings. And I spent a lot of time kind of reviewing the audio and absorbing everything. But yeah, just because <laughs> there are certain stories in my family. My parents just had their 60th wedding anniversary and I'm close to all my siblings and we're a close family. And so there's a lot of family stories that get <laughs> told and I've heard a lot of them, but to hear them, it was interesting to hear like one story. My dad, I don't, I'd never heard him say this, in high school, because my parents have been in high school, he said that he uh, volunteered to become a, a hall monitor, right? You're a, someone at school that makes sure that kids are following the rules, but you're you're a volunteer, <laughs> you're a snitch or something. And he said that he signed up for it partially because he could check out the girls <laughs> and, and he <laughs> was stationed outside this class that my mom would come out and that's when he saw her and he sort of already knew her, but he saw her and he just remembers just seeing how happy she was and how just how pretty she was and just how positive she was and how open and talkative she was. And cause she's still that way. And just hearing him describe that was something I'd never heard before. And it's so specific, right? It's and relatable, but it's, it's the meet cute. <laughs> Turned out my dad was currently dating my mom's friend. Okay. And then essentially in a 1962 version, he ghosted that first girl and started, and then he called my mom. Ghosted her. And oh, asked her. Out. And my mom's first <laughs> response was, are you going out with my friend? And he's like, oh, yeah. <laughs> how did, as a kid, how did you see your parents handle conflict? That's a great question. It's hard for me to remember because I wasn't really taking note, which says something. Yes. Because I absolutely. don't remember I, I don't <laughs> I remember sure them do. <laughs> I don't remember them fighting. I don't remember them arguing. I never had the impression that I could get away with something in front they're very united front. So yeah, I I always just figured they were they were they good. talked about it at night or something at times. Mm -hmm. But they also had a they had a very loving physical lots of kissing and hand holding and all that mushy stuff. So, but upon talking to my parents, I've learned that my dad told me in the interview that he actually really admires my mom because my mom chooses to let go of things. She just says, I'm not going to hold on to that. And then just stays positive. Whereas my dad, he was saying he tends to ruminate negatively on things and he's trying to be like her. Also, it sounds like they're talking more now than they were before. Which I have, I have this, I have this suspicion because they listen to the podcast because they're such great parents that they they're very attentive even though I'm 53 years old. They still are like, well, we gotta. Mm. It's like they're going to my recital in the third grade or something. And I talk a lot about attachment and relationships and conflict and everything, and I wonder if it's um, rubbing off on them a little bit. But. My my parents are both active alcoholics, so they're definitely not listening to my shit. Oh, <laughs> they're no. proud of me, but <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Meaning that their lives are too chaotic for them to actually have the. It would hit too close to home, you know. That feel oh. really uncomfortable. Yeah. Oh, okay, so they would want to, but <laughs> yes, yeah. no, uh... I know they would want. I know they want to deep down inside. Oh, okay, it's, okay. It's not good. It's dark. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, this has been amazing. Do you want to promote anything or what are you excited about? Any videos that you've, or you're going to continue to color Natalia Grace? What is that on? I need to watch it. Is it Netflix? It is on Max. Okay, yeah. perfect. I am looking forward to watching season six of Love is Blind. Nice. When does that start? Has it started? Valentine's Day. Valentine's Day. 2024. What do you think about that concept? What? Love is Blind? Mm -hmm. I like it. I wouldn't do it. Yeah. <laughs> I think it could be tweaked to be less exploitative mm -hmm. in some ways. But I think it, you know, from the most, I've talked to a lot of the cast members and they, most of them say that they had a good time and some people did not have a good time. Some notable cast members, which I believe I, and I hope that the production changes their methods over time. And there seems to be hopefully some effort along those lines. But it, it's interesting because it isolates people, not only just in this warehouse area where they're filming, but they also don't have their phones and they don't mm. have contact with TikTok and their friends and their family. And so it it really, and work, you know, we're more and more people, the average worker today would have been called a workaholic 30 years yeah. ago. Yeah. And I think it gives people a chance to finally slow down and actually focus on something. And I think for some people it works out. There's a lot of marriages that are still, still around from that show. From the show. Yeah. It's very romantic. Do you watch that show? I, no, I watch like, I like not married at first sight. Yeah. That's a good, that's the same production company I found out actually. Oh really? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's, that's an interesting show too. It's just nice. To, I don't know. A good romantic storyline always gets me so i love a, love on the spectrum is my fave oh yeah so have you watched that i've seen bits it's i think so and it's so cute it's really oh, endearing it? so okay. yeah. yeah well thank you so much for your time and thanks for being the real deal and letting people know what's up and there's a lot of bullshit out there so i'm really grateful for especially just the amount of time that you put in continuing education and research and making sure you're in the know of what the hell is actually going on and not just spouting crap <laughs> you do well you know, you know your thanks. shit dude uh, well I, I i better i teach it so what classes Otherwise, do you teach well i'm currently taking a sabbatical for a bit but i a main class that i taught was for therapists was a class in which they analyze their childhoods they learn a bunch of theory and academic stuff but then the other half is they actually will individually investigate their own childhoods and the dynamics and their their issues and they there's a lot of sharing with each other voluntary sharing with each other whatever they're wanting and i create a lot of experiences in class to make it real there's a lot of aha moments oh i would imagine and a lot of crying <laughs> did you ever do anything like that when you were in school yeah i took that very the so that same class. okay i'm glad to know that they have that yeah it's, it's an important class to no shit yeah. yeah. Well, thank you so much for your time. This is great. Thank you.